0: hey everyone welcome back to the jacobin show i'm jen pan here finally again after so long back with labor paul paul it's been a minute how are you what's going on
1: it's, it's nice to be back. I, I'm sorry I've been gone for so long. I, I cheated on you all. I was on weekends once, but um, it's great. That's to right. Be back yeah, you, you
0: did make an appearance, not on your show, but yes. on the other one. No, we yeah. all <laughs> it's all it's all a mix these days. Um, yeah, a lot going on in the news, though. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that you are going to talk about some uh, strike actions that uh, have been bubbling up. Um, I'm going to talk about the recent election, Uh, New York City, of course, among other places had an election uh, for mayor and, you know, for city council seats. Um, And there was a surprising uh, twist in that race where a lot of Asian American voters actually flipped to the Republicans. So I'm going to unpack that in a bit. Uh, And I also want to mention that we have Roger Lancaster, who is the author of the book Sex Panic, uh, which is about moral panics. Uh, And he also has a new piece in the latest issue of Jacobin, which I believe just dropped today. It's called The Devil Goes to Preschool, and it's about the satanic panic in the 80s and the McMartin daycare trial. If you don't know about this, uh, stay tuned. It's a really fascinating, uh, kind of phenomenon that, as I said, happened in the eighties. Um, and still, I think has consequences and reverberations today. Uh, so, so Paul, what's going on in the world of work?
1: Yeah. You know, before I get to my segment, just kind of want to give another shout out to Striketober is continuing, even though it is November. Um, but, you know, a lot of interesting things happening. I mean, some people may know, you know, John Deere workers have, you know, they rejected their agreement twice. And, you know, just so people know, it is kind of rare, you know, usually if a union leadership is recommending a contract, um, you know, most times that it will get voted through no problem. But I think the fact that you're seeing in multiple cases, workers kind of rejecting the agreement that their own union leadership is bringing back because they want more kind of really gives a sense of the mood. That workers are in. And, you know, also, I mean, it's worth thinking about how the issues of inflation might be playing into this because it's like, you know, 3%, 4% wage increase uh, is increasingly meaningless uh, when you're seeing the levels of inflation that we're seeing. Um, you know, the IATSE um, uh, possible strike that some people were following, um, the latest news I heard from that is that um, there is an agreement that very narrowly passed um, by IATSE, um, but, there are many workers who are not happy about that. Um, Kaiser Permanente, uh, healthcare workers, um, very nearly came to a strike, um, but it seems like they have settled for now. But I think all of this is really to say that I think this militant mood, um, I hope, is not going anywhere soon. I think we're going to keep seeing these things bubbling up, um, and you know we'll see how this interacts with how the economy is going generally. Um, but, you know, I, I think I September, just want to quickly,
0: sorry, I just yeah. want to quickly add that um, you even see a lot of non-union workers who are quitting their jobs. So the the great resignation is also still underway. Um, and I don't I actually I, I would be curious if you have thoughts about that, too, Paul, because. I, I mean, I think that it's interesting, and you can assume that it's for a lot of the same reason that these union workers um, and essential workers are going on strike. Uh, but I don't think we've ever seen anything like this, honestly, in like the last several decades.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I wish I could kind of pretend I could give a comprehensive answer of what is going on, but you know, I, I even know in my own life personally, like I think COVID for so many of us kind of put a break on life as usual, and I think you know, many people just reflecting on different things they can do with like their life or different opportunities opening up. Um, you know, one thing I'll say not to be like a cranky guy, but I do get a little annoyed at people kind of framing this great resignation as if it were like a collective labor action, or mm-hmm. I've heard some people kind of refer to it as like a low key general strike, which really ignores, annoys me. And it's like, again, like, yes, workers have more leverage right now, you know, People are making these uh, decisions, but, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact is, like, individuals resigning is very different than collective labor action. You you know what I mean? Um, So I just think people should kind of be cautious with how they're describing this stuff. It's really not the same as, like, a strike or a general strike or something like that.
0: Yeah. And actually, because there are so many uh, union strikes going on right now or kind of on the edge of about to happen, I think that is a really useful comparison. I mean, you see what kinds of things workers are able to ask for, to demand and even get uh, when they are unionized um, and able to strike collectively as opposed to, as you said, just people sort of leaving their jobs because they're fed up with, you know, whatever bad work conditions they had to suffer through through COVID or before or whatever. So yeah, it's a right. really interesting juxtaposition, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah. and you know, I mean, so my segment to speak of a lot of workers who are leaving their jobs in, in large numbers and many workers are going to strike is about nurses. Um, and so, you know, with this global pandemic we've been living through these last two years, there's perhaps been no group of workers more essential than nurses and other healthcare workers. And there's also probably no group of workers that have been more stretched to their absolute limit than nurses and healthcare workers. And increasingly, nurses are joining in on this kind of mini wave, mini strike wave that we're seeing taking place. So, St. Vincent Hospital workers in Massachusetts have been on strike well before Strike striketober uh, started. And there have been threats of strikes by healthcare workers in many other parts of the country. And the demand that has become most central in many of these fights is not wages or benefits, but safe staffing ratios. Safe staffing ratios would put a mandatory limit on the number of patients that could be assigned per nurse. This would ensure better quality and safer care for patients and would reduce workplace injuries for nurses. Safe staffing ratios could literally be the difference between life or death for patients. And the California Nurses Association conducted a study to determine what kind of impact safe staffing ratios could have on patient safety, and the results were astounding. California is actually the only state with actual legislation mandating mandating safe staffing. And according to the union, saying, a seminal study from 2010 on the impact of California's ratios compared California hospitals post-implementation of the state's minimum nurse-to-patient ratios law to hospitals in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and found, unsurprisingly, that if New Jersey and Pennsylvania matched California's ratios in medical surgical units, then New Jersey would have 13.9% fewer patient deaths and Pennsylvania 10.6% fewer deaths. Compared to states without ratios, the study found that California RNs reported having more time to spend with patients and that hospitals are more likely to have enough RNs on staff to provide quality patient care. In fact, the lead investigator of the study reported to the San Francisco Chronicle that, quote, the differences between California and the other states are striking, said Linda Aiken. Nurses in California take care of two fewer patients on average than nurses in Pennsylvania and New Jersey in general surgery. These differences lead to the prevention of literally thousands of deaths. Safe staffing ratios are also in the direct self-interest of nurses and should be viewed as an occupational health and safety issue. Many people may not realize this, but nursing is a very physically demanding job. Just think about all the people nurses take care of who require physical assistance, all the lifting of human bodies that nurses may do on a daily basis. Safe staffing ratios can significantly cut down on workplace injury. So the CNA study went on to say, researchers examined the rates of occupational injury and illness to registered nurses in California before and after the RN staffing ratio law was passed looking at a range of years from 2000 to 2009. They compared this data to the occupational injury and illness rates for registered nurses in the other 49 states and D.C. that have not adopted minimal numerical staffing ratio laws. They found that the California RN staffing ratio law was associated with a 31.6% reduction in occupational injuries and illnesses among RNs working in hospitals in California. Now, most often, the fight for safe staffing has taken place among individual unions in their specific contracts with certain employers. But increasingly, nurses, nurses unions are fighting for actual legislation at the state level. California, again, is the only state to win safe staffing legislation. And this is the result of an organizing and lobbying campaign done by the CNA.
2: California Nurses Association really took the lead in uh, fighting for safe staffing. How we did that as a union together was by having a change in leadership. All the board members, the presidents, all of the officers were working bedside nurses. They understood the frontline work of the registered nurse. They understood what happens when corporate makes a lot of decisions that affect patient care and that makes it unsafe. This group of leaders decided that they could fight for legislation that would put a limit on the number of patients in our scarce for at one time. Through the union and having the
3: expertise of our legislative and regulatory staff, we drafted the strongest safe staffing ratio law in the nation.
2: This kicked off the revolution in California
3: for safe patient care. We collected the stories and everybody had a story to tell about a very scary incident that they had, whether it was themselves or our loved ones, and we went into the state capitol and we told those stories to the legislature. The hospitals were there with their hundreds
2: of lobbyists. They're using their strength and power, and so we decided to do the same. Nurses in California fought day and night for over a year. We made district visits, we wrote letters to the editors, we did petitions, we organized. They were present at every rally, every protest, they marched on the Capitol. And so all of this came together until
3: we actually got the bill through the legislature on the governor's desk and it was signed.
2: And with the the fight and the victory in California, our union um, representing only direct care nurses learned a critical lesson.
3: The only way that you can overcome the large contributions of these corporate employers is by coming together. It just
2: really makes a difference when you have somebody to back you up. You can stand up for your patients and know that there are over 100,000 nurses behind you. If we want to win this nationally, the only way it will happen is if you get involved, if you organize, secure your right to be a patient advocate, and join the movement. For nurse-to-patient ratios.
3: When we come together and organize, we really have the ability to be powerful in the legislature.
1: The California State Staffing Law has been a resounding resounding success for patients and nurses. The doomsday scenarios that the hospital industry fear-mongered about have not come to pass. In a statement on the law released by the CNA, they said, These seminal safe staffing ratios took effect in all California acute care hospitals on January 1st, 2004. The sky did not fall. Hospitals did not close in mass as a result of needing to comply with the safe staffing laws. Patients were not turned away from emergency departments. But what did happen is that nursing in California became a much more rewarding profession again. RNs within the state not only were turned to the bedside, but the California ratios attracted nurses from across the country who appreciated being able to practice nursing under a safe working environment and actually get to spend time with their patients. Nurse recruitment and retention has improved, saving hospitals from the expense and clinical disruption of rapid turnover among nursing staff. And like I mentioned before, increasingly safe staffing legislation is being introduced in state legislatures across the country. And usually nurses unions are leading the effort. The left should rally around this legislation and form coalitions with nurses' unions to fight for it. Left candidates should make this a core part of their platform, and left electives should be out front as the main champions of it. And this issue isn't going away, and has become a core part of almost every nurses' union contract fight. St. Vincent nurses have been on strike for eight months, and safe staffing is a main priority.
4: What do we want? Safe staffing!
5: Loud voices stand in solidarity with one clear message.
4: safe staffing! safe
5: staffing! Instead of taking care of patients, nurses at St. Vincent's Hospital in Worcester are taking to the streets. On Monday, hundreds of nurses went on strike to push back against what they're calling unsafe staffing conditions. Marlena Pellegrino has been a registered nurse for 34 years.
6: We're having a staffing crisis in that building where we have too few bed, bedside nurses um, able to take care of our patients.
5: The nurses are represented by the Massachusetts Nurses Association. The union says in the last year alone, nurses have filed more than 600 complaints about staffing.
2: Well, I've been at this hospital for 13 years as an emergency room nurse, and we've seen no increase in staffing in that time.
5: They say it's become so critical as jeopardizing the safety of patients.
2: People's lives are in danger every day.
5: St. Vincent's Hospital CEO Caroline Jackson.
2: It's very disappointing that they chose to walk out and go on strike today, given that we are still in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, We feel the offer we have on the table for them is very fair and has appropriate
6: staffing. We're not going to go back into that building unless there is safe staffing uh,
2: in our contract.
5: Nurses say it's the last thing they want to do, but they're out of options.
2: I want to be at the bedside. I want to be with my my patients.
1: And this issue is a little bit personal for me. The first political campaign I ever got involved in was a nurse's strike back in 2010, where I got involved in building student support for the workers. I became more invested in that strike when I heard from a nurse what the campaign was really about. It was about more than their wages or their benefits. I was moved when they described how the pressure to take on more patients literally put lives in danger. It also made a light bulb go off for me into how powerful the labor movement could be, that the labor movement is a place where we can fight for the interests of all people, not just the particular members of a given union. And safe staffing is a great example of bargaining for the common good, a strategy that I've mentioned on this show before. Bargaining for the common good is the idea of unions bargaining for things that benefit the broader community as well as their own members. And this approach is not just the morally right thing to do. It's strategically sound as well. Having the support of the broader community can be the difference between a union winning a strike and losing. And it's a way of making a connection between unions and mostly non-union working class. It also helps to preempt the anti-union talking points from management. We know they're always going to try and paint striking workers as selfish and privilege in comparison to other workers. But it's hard for people to really believe that when they see that the nurses' union is putting the concerns of patients front and center. And The issues over safe staffing are one of the most clear-cut examples of what happens when healthcare, and specifically hospitals, are run for profit instead of human need. Hospitals are doing the same kind of cost-cutting and lean production methods that we see in almost every other industry in the economy. Simply put, they're trying to squeeze more work out of less workers so they, they can increase their profit margins. And the fight for safe staffing at its core is about taking the profit motive out of healthcare. It's becoming urgent that we do something on this issue. Across the country, nurses are reporting being burned out like they've never had been before. COVID-19 would have put enormous strains on nurses, even with good staffing ratios. But the fact that the pandemic has collided with previous existing staffing issues has pushed many healthcare workers to the breaking point. And if we don't improve conditions soon, the future of our healthcare system will be at stake. An article about nurses in Pennsylvania explained, concerns about safe staff to patient ratios predated the pandemic for nurses in Philadelphia and across the country, but the high intensity needs of COVID-19 patients have made the crisis worse. And nurses say the relentlessly chaotic conditions are causing career professionals to seek jobs at hospitals with better staffing ratios or leave the field altogether. This is the worst it's ever been in healthcare, says Mary Adamson, who's a nurse at Temple Hospital. I've been in and around hospitals for 30 years, and this is the worst. The next time you drive by a picket line of nurses or see something on the news about another nurse's strike, just realize that they are probably fighting for the right to be able to do the best job that they can do for their patients. And it's time that we pass safe safe staffing laws in every single state. So what do you think,
0: I don't know if you guys remember this, um, but if you were watching when we had Max Alvarez on, like... I think months ago at this point, um, we talked about the St. Vincent nurses strike then, uh, which was already, I believe in like its sixth month or something at that point. Um, and they're still on strike. So Paul, when you actually showed that clip of the strike and the CEO of the hospital saying like, well, I can't believe that these nurses, uh, went on strike during a pandemic. It's so selfish. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that that company, Tenant Healthcare, the ball is in their court and they actually could have ended the strike two months ago, but they right. chose not to. So there's that. Um, yeah. The second thing I want to point out, and we talked about this again uh, when we had Max Alvarez on, is that it's actually really difficult for nurses to go on strike. It's not nothing. It's it's a really right. big deal. Um the obvious reason, of course, is that, uh, you know, right. when nurses go on, nurses can't just walk out of the emergency room. People will die. Uh, that much is true. And and they don't want that. They care deeply about their patients. Right. Um, you know, I talked to one of the nurses who uh, actually the woman in the um, the woman in the clip you showed, Mar- Marlena Pellegrino. Um, she made it really clear that nurses obviously care deeply about their patients. This is not a light undertaking. Um, there's actually even language built into most nursing contracts that uh you know they can't go on strike or there's like a 10 day like grace period where right. when they after they you know authorize a strike they're not just going to work out i mean there are all of these mechanisms built in because it is so devastating when nurses go on strike so that's all to say that it is a huge, it's, uh, you know, it's a huge deal. Um, and as you said, they're doing it for the patients. And I think that's really clear. Um, even with the Kaiser Permanente strike that seems to have been averted today, um, mm-hmm. I believe that one of the provisions that they they fought for and that they actually got in the tentative negotiations was uh, better staffing ratios. Right. So.
1: Yeah. And, you know, just to make clear how the hospitals are usually bullshitting when they fake concern over the patients, because of course they'll say the nurses are putting patients' lives in in jeopardy from striking. But going back to that strike in 2010 that I was involved in, and and actually the woman quoted in that last article, Mary Adamson is a good friend of mine who was part of that strike. Um, But, you know, the, when they brought in the scabs, you know, in this case, it's like, it's a much more dangerous thing because they were bringing in people who were not, as skilled as uh you know the nurses were, and this is different than like you know it's one thing to bring in workers scabs for the John Deere strike who may right. not know what they're doing, but like you know when you're dealing with nurses, that was a big um you know big risk they were taking. Mm-hmm. And as usual in most strikes, we found that they spent more money trying to break the strike than they would have taken to actually just settle right. the demands. Um, but you know that that's just a danger that exists well with them bringing in replacement workers for nurses because. It's not exactly something that anyone can just do it, to be a nurse. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah. Um, and again, this is something that we touched on when we had Max Alvarez on again. But I think that the the interesting thing about nursing and healthcare as a profession is, on the one hand, you can see that these workers have enormous leverage, right? Like, like I said, like it is literally a matter of life and death in. Very many of these cases, like it is not, it's not easy for anybody when nurses go on strike. Um, At the same time, that also makes it that much more difficult for them to go on an open-ended strike. Um, And I I don't know, that's something that I think about a lot, I guess. Uh, But I think what you were saying about making uh, safe staffing uh, part of or part of a legislative package uh, is so crucial and and really you know really interesting because you know nurse because it's so difficult for nurses to go on strike. Like, what if we took that that out of the equation
1: right yeah and i think it's interesting for someone who's a legislator to think about because it's both a labor specific kind of bill but it's also like a broader public right public health yeah right you know and i think i think especially you know post-covid or i guess mid-covid whatever we are (laughs) uh you know i think (laughs) yeah whatever we are in the covid process um (laughs) <laughs> you know, I think there'd be something that would appeal to voters or people would really see the importance of. And mm-hmm. one, and maybe one last thing is um, for people to realize that I think in the last 20 years, um, nurses have been the fastest unionizing group of workers, um, you know, and, um, and even in Pennsylvania, you know, in my state, we've seen like a, a rush of nurses organizing in these last five to 10 years. And I think they hit a point where for a while it was tough because, Many nurses were kind of thought on themselves as, you know, we're professionals, we're not mm-hmm. workers, we don't need a union. But, you know, conditions on the ground are, are forcing them to think differently. And and they are the fastest group of workers who are, you know, organizing unions now.
0: So do you think that, uh, you know, the pandemic is going to kind of spark more militancy among uh, both unionized and non-unionized nurses? Because it kind of seems it kind of seems to be right
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems like it already has. Um, And I, you know, something I've always been wondering is just like, even just the rhetoric of essential workers. And it's like, for, you know, be careful what you say, like people are going to actually start (laughs) believing that, you know, and seeing that it's true. Um, And I I wonder how much that's playing into what is going on here. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of like um, similar examples, like, obviously it's a very, very different context, but post-World War II, there was a huge strike wave again, We all love to talk about general strikes. There were real general strikes in the post-World War II strike wave. I think part of it was this sense of like, we've sacrificed a lot. You know, there were wage controls during the war, price controls. um, You know, we sacrifice a lot. There's pent up demand. And now, you know, we deserve something. And I wonder, obviously, a very different context, I think, to a much smaller degree. But I wonder if that same kind of mindset is happening now among workers.
0: Right. Well, stay tuned. Yeah. (laughs) Um, All right, so we will be getting to our interview with our guest, Roger Lancaster, uh, shortly. uh, But before we dive into that, um, I am going to talk a little bit about uh, the recent election and specifically about something that happened in New York that I think is pretty interesting. So a few years ago, it seemed like Asian American voters were well on the way to becoming a reliable part of the Democratic coalition. Now, first of all, it has to be said that very few politicians bother to talk to or campaign to Asians. Uh, In 2018, for instance, over 70% of Asians in one poll said they had received no contact from either political party. Now, despite this, over the last two decades, Asian voters have shifted by nearly 40 points toward the Democrats in presidential elections. What's more is that the few surveys of Asian voters that do exist suggests that a majority favor progressive measures such as increased spending on public programs, higher federal taxes on the rich to pay for said said programs, ensuring that all workers have access to affordable, high-quality health care, and what's more is that they support Congress passing environmental protections and other initiatives to fight climate change. Even I myself wrote just before the 2020 general election that there was huge potential for Democrats and progressives to win this quickly growing demographic because, number one, as I said, Asians broadly favor progressive economic policies, and number two, Asian voters had broken for Bernie in both the California and Nevada primaries. However, in the elections earlier this year, something curious happened. In New York City, where Asians make up 16% of the population, there was a hard swing among working class Asian neighborhoods to the right. According to early exit polls, in the city's mayoral race, a surprising number of Asian voters cast ballots for the Republican candidate for mayor, Curtis Sliwa, who's the founder of the vigilante group Guardian Angels. Reporters covering the election for the publication The City wrote, in Asian-concentrated communities from Flushing to Bayside in Queens to Sunset Park and Sheepshead Bay in Brooklyn, Sleewa led Democrat Eric Adams from a few dozen to a few thousand votes, winning outright in 137 out of the city's 317 majority Asian election districts. So why exactly did so many Asian voters shift right in this race? The most straightforward explanation is that the city's democratic leadership has made it clear for years that they see Asians as entirely expendable. For instance, in 2018, Mayor Bill de Blasio and Department of Education Chancellor Richard Carranza, both of whom had pledged to desegregate and improve the entire public school system, announced that actually they were just going to make a handful of top schools less Asian. Take a look.
6: A group of protesters gather in front of New York's City Hall. They are there to voice opposition to the mayor's plan to get rid of the controversial entrance exam at the city's elite public high schools.
3: We think it's a superficial fix to a deep problem. It's sort of like putting a band-aid because you got cancer. It just doesn't fix anything.
6: In New York, there are nine highly coveted public high schools. Entrance to eight of them relies entirely on results from the specialized high school's admissions test, a test the mayor thinks leads to inequality. African Americans and Hispanics represent two-thirds of the city's student body, yet get only roughly 10 percent of the spots. Meanwhile, Asian Americans, who represent 16 percent of New York's students, received more than 50 percent of the seats last year. The mayor says the underrepresented communities are losing out because they have less money to pay for tutoring and test prep. Supporters of the test disagree.
3: Their parents decided to put their money towards that test. It's not rich people that are taking
1: these courses, these are poor working class immigrants that are directing their resources towards enrichment.
6: The mayor thinks there's a more equitable approach. He would like to see admissions based on school performance and statewide exam scores. He also wants a certain amount of seats allocated to the top performing students at each of the city's middle schools.
0: Now, is it shameful that Black and Latino students are underrepresented at these top schools? Of course. At the same time, these specialized high schools account for only 6% of seats within the city's public school system. As reporter Ginia Belafonte has pointed out, Even if every seat at Stuyvesant were taken by a student from a low-income Black or Latino family, a few thousand children would embark on a clear path to success, while tens of thousands of other Black and Latino children in the same circumstance would have no such obvious road in front of them. In other words, instead of even trying to deliver on his campaign promise to improve the entirety of New York's public education system— de Blasio's administration took up a last-minute scheme to diversify literally nine schools. Instead of fighting to open or improve schools in Asian immigrant neighborhoods so students in Queens, for instance, wouldn't have to travel two hours each day to attend Stuyvesant High in Lower Manhattan— DOE Chancellor Richard Carranza also chose to fixate on these nine schools, and at one point suggested that Asians were hoarding spots at these schools, saying, I just don't buy into the narrative that any one ethnic group owns admission to these schools. Then there's the issue of violent crime, which has spiked in New York over the last year. Asians have been the victims of several high-profile assaults, which were largely committed by repeat offenders suffering from mental illness.
2: On the heels of Monday's disturbing, unprovoked attack of another Asian victim in Chinatown, we're learning more about the suspect who's been charged with this assault. Surveillance video shows 48-year-old Alexander Wright punching the 55-year-old woman on Bayard Street, causing her to collapse. Police say Wright had alleged K-2 or synthetic cannabis on him when he was taken into custody. And that's not all. Wright, who was homeless, has more than 40 arrests on his record. He was taken to Bellevue Hospital immediately after the the incident for a psychiatric evaluation. In another attack last month, police are still searching for this man, who police say was inside the Broadway and West 116th Street subway station on May 12th when he swung his cane multiple times, striking a 23-year-old Asian woman on her head and hip as she stepped off the platform. Calls are increasingly growing around the city for Mayor Bill de Blasio to do more to address mental illness, its prevalence among the homeless population, and the disturbing connection between the homeless and recent anti-Asian attacks.
1: I certainly am deeply concerned we've had a spate of horrible attacks against Asian Americans.
3: You never know what the attacker suspect is capable of or what they carry. Jin
2: Zen witnessed the end of the attack and video recorded the suspect's arrest. Jin says he encourages his loved ones to not live in fear and instead go about their lives normally in the city where they live.
0: Now, while he of course issued a battery of obligatory statements about stopping Asian hate and treating mental illness in order to reduce attacks, the truth is that de Blasio's record on addressing mental health in New York has been spotty at best. De Blasio's signature mental health initiative, Thrive NYC, which he established in 2015 and appointed his wife to lead, has been plagued by controversy and mismanagement over the years. Take a look. Tonight, a
3: call for
5: accountability. No one's saying that we shouldn't be spending money on mental health. We just want to know where the money has gone.
3: Thrive NYC is the mental health initiative run by the city's first lady, Sherlaine McRae. The program is supposed to help New Yorkers gain access to the counseling help they need. But the four-year budget for Thrive has swelled to $1 billion, with people like Councilman Joe Borelli wondering, what does Thrive actually accomplish?
5: The fact that there hasn't been any transparency really about where the money has gone uh, once it's been allocated to, to this idea known as uh, Thrive NYC is, is quite concerning.
3: Monday, Borelli sent this letter to Thrive demanding more information on how many people the program helps. Borelli was supposed to meet with Thrive officials today at City Hall, but first the meeting was postponed and then...
5: Unexpectedly, uh, the the directors of Thrive uh, just canceled it uh, without warning.
3: Today, New York Magazine reported Thrive NYC has been losing behavioral health workers in droves. Council Speaker Corey Johnson even weighed in, saying he hopes Thrive and other programs favored by the mayor are not getting special treatment.
0: Over the next few years, the program continued to evade accountability and waste resources while New York's mental health crisis continues to grow. In other words, leading up to this year's election, there was a perception among working class Asian voters that that de Blasio's administration and by extension, the Democratic Party had left them behind, if not outright thrown them under the bus. Add to this the fact that Curtis Sliwa canvassed heavily in Asian neighborhoods using Asian language campaign materials. And it's not hard to see why the Democrats took a beating at the polls. So where do progressives go from here? One option is to just call working-class Asians dupes for voting Republican. As a matter of fact, woke Asian commentators love disparaging less fortunate Asians for their unenlightened beliefs. For instance, when Asian parents protested de Blasio's ill-conceived scheme to make New York's specialized high schools less Asian, one university professor took to the New York Times to call them racist. Too many Asians have chosen to preserve the status quo by buying into racism against Blacks and the white supremacist system built on it, the professor wrote. But I would argue that there's another way to think about this problem. When Democrats fixate on ridiculous pet projects like diversifying nine schools in the largest, most segregated public school system in the country, they will lose votes. When they issue empty statements about social justice, but fail to actually improve the quality of life for working class people of all races, they will lose votes. And when they don't bother to campaign to certain groups, and in fact, when they act like they flat out disdain them, They will absolutely lose votes. New York's election earlier this month was just one of many warning signs to Democrats across the country. But whether they'll do anything about it is an entirely different story altogether, especially given that Democratic elites and even many progressive groups are increasingly out of touch with working class voters. As the New York-based journalist Ross Barkin tweeted last week, very little from the NGO world about how the Asian vote in New York City dramatically swung toward the Republican Party. For progressive organizations, this should be something like a crisis. Asians are the fastest growing group in in New York City by far, but nary a peep. What makes the rightward swing among Asian New Yorkers especially bleak is the fact that, as I have mentioned earlier, we have plenty of evidence that a majority of Asian voters want things like universal health care, a higher minimum wage, and more public spending. These are policies that the Democrats could be and should be campaigning on with a laser focus if they want to win this group. But it's completely unclear whether they're paying any attention. To paraphrase Bernie Sanders, who excoriated the Democratic Party after their shocking loss in the 2016 presidential election, Democrats should be deeply humiliated that they're losing working class Asian voters.
1: Yeah, you know, this is like just one more uh, piece of evidence for a theme I think you've been hinting on for a while that demographics are indeed not destiny. Um, You know, we should be sounding the alarm on that. But also, I mean, kind of just made me think about, and you know, this is a term sometimes I use, but it's like uh, the problem of terms like people of color, or I guess more like the the meaninglessness of those terms um, Mm -hmm. politically. And um, I think some people realize that and then I guess BIPOC was supposed to be a corrective to that, but it doesn't seem to really, really get at the problem. But yeah, I mean, it just increasingly becomes meaningless to try to put all these groups under one umbrella with like an unstated assumption that they're going to vote the same way or have the same views on race or, or whatever. And also, you know, like in many elections, it comes down to maybe some very particular local issues. Um, So if, you know, it can't be assumed if you're not addressing those issues, you can't really mm-hmm. assume anything about how voters will act.
0: I also want to add, and I've done a segment about this in the past. Uh, so if anybody's interested, find that. Uh, but even the category of Asian American is like very unstable. Um, right. You know, uh, the Asian Americans, <laughs> like as a group have, I think the highest uh, economic inequality uh, of any racial group in the U S um, you know, we are, when people, when we hear, you know, progressive groups, or actually really anybody's purporting to speak for Asian Americans, those are usually college educated elites, right? And something I want to point out about this race, particularly in New York, but I'm sure that you can see this playing out elsewhere is that, you know, when I talk about Asian voters in in this particular segment, I'm specifically referring to working class Asian voters, like Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about, you know, rich tech Asians. Uh, I, you know, which I mean, that is a constituency as well. Um, but here I'm talking about, I mean, I just want to be really clear about that because, you know, again, to go along with uh, the what you were saying about this idea of like demographic destiny, which is something, as you mentioned, I talk about quite a bit on the show. Like there is a divergence happening between uh, c- college educated and non-college educated right. voters of all races. Um, and so, you know, On the whole, did Asians in New York still vote Democrat? They did. Uh, You know, this is like, you know, what happened after Trump or like we've seen in a past in, you know, several elections in the past. We've seen a shift among Latinos, Asians, even some black voters toward Republicans. The majority of, you know, these non-white voters are still voting for Democrats. But I really think that this is a canary in the coal mine.
1: Right. And also it's like those small margins can really matter, you know, whether it's presidential or local election. Um, But yeah, and I think, you know, remember there was kind of that moment during the summer, you know, there were there were a string of like violent acts against Asian Americans. And like, I feel like the Democratic Party went on this like blitz, this mm-hmm. kind of offensive to do like the same thing they did with George Floyd that moment with Asian Americans. And like, um, again, I think we're seeing like, you know, that might appeal to a small section of, of, of Asian Americans or probably people who are already, very committed to the democratic party, but like mm-hmm. that in itself, that kind of framework or only focusing on that, that one particular aspect of um, right. Asian American voters um, and lacking the other things that they care about. It's just not going to work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also want to point out really quickly on that note uh, about, you know, the, the democratic party blitz about like stop Asian hate and all of that. Um, You can see in New York and also other cities like San Francisco, the targets of these attacks, um, which, by the way, and I've said this on the show before, like lots of them, it's unclear to what degree they're racially motivated. That does seem to be a factor. But it's part of a larger increase in violent crime, which we see happening in a lot of major cities. Uh, And, you know, it's again, it's working class Asians. It's people who are working in restaurants, in the service industry, you know, in in small businesses, in laundries, who are barely the brunt of these attacks. Again, it's not these rich tech Asians, you know, who have been the ones to, I think, kind of become the face of like this stop Asian hate.
1: Yeah, for sure. And yeah. um I wonder if there's gonna be a movie called Rich Tech Asian soon.
0: But <laughs> yes, yeah, stay tuned for that. Right. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, you know, I I, on the subject of crime, I guess, um, I think that we have our guest Roger Lancaster with us now. Uh, Roger Lancaster, uh, who's joining us, is a professor of anthropology and cultural studies at George Mason University. He's the author of the book Sex Panic and the Punitive State. And he has an article in the latest issue of Jacobin called The Devil Goes to Preschool, which is about uh, the McMartin daycare trial, uh, the satanic panic in the 80s and the way that the liberal media sort of stoked that moral panic. Um, So Roger, first of all, thank you for joining us.
7: Thank you, Jen. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So before we dive into, you know, everything about the liberal media and kind of their role in fomenting a sex panic, um, I just want to kind of hit on the basics of what the satanic panic is. Uh, I think lots of people probably have a general idea. um, But, you know, there were thousands of alleged satanic sexual abuse cases that happened in the 80s no evidence whatsoever that any of this ever occurred. Um, I, I, I feel like there have been a few books uh, over the last few years that have kind of tried to, you know, exhume what happened. Um, I know Richard Beck wrote a book called We Believe the Children, which I really enjoyed. Um, but can you give us an overview of what the satanic panic was and specifically like how did the McMartin trial sort of kick it off? And what were the kinds of like social and economic conditions that precipitated this?
7: This is this is a big question, and um, I mean the the actual ball started rolling in Kern County, um, involving uh, accusations that were started by I think a schizophrenic relative of a family, and then the children were coerced into giving testimony against their parents, and then pretty soon. The whole thing had ballooned into a into a huge uh, into a huge case it's It uh, soon followed to uh, McMartin preschool, which was another enormous uh legal case um, and within a few weeks, it seemed eminently plausible to large numbers of serious people that an underground cabal of satanists had been operating out of preschools for years if not decades had been undetected by authorities all this time and were using their preschool activities as a front for sexually abusing children um, in some cases supposedly ritually sacrificing them and so on you ask about the background i mean The background is complicated. Uh, yeah, typical academic response, right? It's complicated, <laughs> but it's it's maybe not altogether that complicated, right? I mean, uh, the, the libertarian ethos of the 1960s was followed by a, a cultural retrenchment in the 1970s. So you had a lot of increasingly, I don't know, if the 60s were all about sexual liberation, the 70s started to see... Retrenchment and sex negative attitudes being expressed not only by evangelical fundamentalists who had always been sex negative, uh, let's be clear, but also certain variants of feminism joined that and and were involved in campaigns against pornography and so on. So there were also anti-gay backlashes that happened in the 70s. and, And as you might know, I mean, you're too young to remember it, I think. Those of us who lived through it remember very well how how conservative figures would dangle small children in front of the public and say, you know, do you really trust homosexuals to be around your children? Um, so you had a whole you had a series of things leading up to this, um, and then there's this one little extra factor that I think you have to take into account or two, we'll say, right? One of them is that. There was a book that was popular with therapists and social workers uh, called Michelle Remembers. And it, it was the conversations between a psychiatrist and his patient in which they supposedly unearthed her history of having been abused by Satanists as a child. And this became a kind of an underground, I don't know, I, it wasn't a bestseller, but it was a bestseller in some circles. Unfortunately, these were all the circles that you you wouldn't want this book to be circulated among. I mean, social workers read it. Uh, some psychiatrists and psychologists read it. And there, so the book contains a blueprint for soliciting accusations of satanic ritual abuse and for uncovering memories using suggestive interview techniques and for uncovering memories using hypnosis. Now, I mean, you know, the whole thing about hypnosis and, uh, once you've solicited a memory, uh, the hypnosis, you can't really tell whether it's a real memory or a a false memory. Right. Um, um so here you have you have a Kern County, McMartin Preschool, make the national news, all of the social workers in America, well not all of them, but a lot of them, a lot of drinks, a lot of other people involved have this Bible that they can consult how to look for signs and symptoms. And pretty soon they were unearthing evidence of of vast Ritual abuse largely through coaxed coerced and and leading uh questioning of small children who are malleable and and easy to manipulate that way um, the other factor you i mean so so you've got you've got backlash you've got retrenchment you've got all of that stuff going on you've also got this this pamphlet that that helps find this. And as a result, it seemed eminently plausible that this stuff was happening, right? Um, the other side is though if I if I'm remember if I'm remembering my dates correctly, God, I did this research like a decade ago, so like you know, you might have to help me out a little bit. Um, Ronald Reagan's welfare cuts take effect, and then mm-hmm. within weeks or months, you get the, the sudden explosion of all of this stuff happening. So it, it's it's also in a context, it's hard to draw a hard and fast rule, but this seems to have possibly something to do with the retrenchment of welfare uh, supports for families with small children. Um, add to this parental nervousness about sending kids their small kids off to uh to uh to be taken care of at daycare, and you kind of have a recipe for a mass epidemic of of uh, of accusation and panic and mm-hmm. and anxiety
1: mm-hmm. oh can you talk about like how how did the media help stoke? this panic and really in general, even today, like do you think the media is always playing a role in stoking (laughs) these moral and sex panics?
7: You're going to make me mad here. I mean, the media performed a a, a really awful disservice during the satanic ritual abuse. Certainly Uh, the New York times newsweek time newspapers in California basically stoked the flames um they uncritically reported accusations they uncritically reported expert witnesses testimony that was based on michelle remembers and and um I mean uh, you you uh, of course I'm I'm talking to Jen and Paul and they're too young to remember. If you talk to parents I I'm in grad school at this time right if you talk if you talked to parents they were genuinely frightened by this stuff. They 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 were they were anxious, they believed the charges, they believed the accusations. It seemed plausible to them. That this might happen to their children, and um, and you know, the media could. The media had become yellower and yellow. I mean, yellow tabloid journalism. The media had been becoming progressively tabloidized. I think uh, in the late nineteen seventies into the nineteen eighties, but. There were, no, there were no breaks applied. There, were, there was no plausible uh, doubt ever expressed. Um, it, it went forward for uh, several years before you could see signs of skepticism in, in the coverage.
0: So I I wonder if you can expand on that a little by talking about what gives rise to sex panics in general. And this, again, is going back to your book. Um, you connect it. You connect sex panics in your book to just you know the incredibly punitive nature of the United States and the expansion of the carceral state. Can you talk a little bit about that?
7: Yeah, I mean, I try to connect these these tendencies with uh, the rise of mass incarceration, which they play out know, kind of in tandem with with it, right? Um. What causes anything? It's a, it, causes are hard. And I, I, I probably approach this more like a historian than like a sociologist, um, although I am an anthropologist by training. Um, every sex panic probably has different, alignments of forces behind them. So if you look at sex panics of the 19th century, um, they're almost all about the protection of white women and children from the supposed predations of black, brown, and yellow men. Um, And that's one very strong motif, and it and it happens over and over again, and it's one of the reasons that rape accusations could play such an outsized role in the enforcement of Jim Crow and, and well into the 20th century, and, and so on. So that's one type, right? Uh, if you look at another type, though, uh, a different kind of configuration starts in the 1930s. You had uh, maybe because you had large numbers of unemployed white uh, men on the la- on the loose, um, homeless and wandering. Um, you had the expression of certain kinds of anxieties about that. But in, in the new run of sex panics that start in the 1930s and then are interrupted by World War II and then really take off at the end of World War II, when 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 things got to normal as it were, um you you have a you have a different cast of villains. It's mostly white men. Um it's mostly it's mostly homosexual white men in in, in actual fact, right? Um so so you get a different kind of sex panic that starts in the McCarthy era. What's weird about the 80s is that most of the accusations were made against women. Like a lot of the, a a very large percentage, not maybe not half, but a large percentage of the accusations were made against women because they were school teachers. Um, So every one of these will look a little bit different. Some of them happen when you have, you know, economic boom, some of them happen when you have economic bust. It's So it's hard to make, I, I, this is why I say I, I like to think about it like a historian rather than like somebody looking for rules and laws, right? Uh, you, you try to assemble the factors and take them in place. But I think one of the things that is, rec- hmm, how do I put this? Moral panics, of which sex panics are a subset, are a recurring feature of American political life, and I think that's because, well, for a variety of reasons. One, we're uh, in the United States; we're constitutionally blocked from making welfare. The pivot of governance, like if you look at look at our constitution, it's it's a it's a mess from the 1700s, right? Um, And it's it tells you government shall not, government shall make no law, Congress shall make no law, the state cannot do this, the state cannot do that. So what what you have in the constitution is a series of impediments for putting governance on the basis. That governments eventually found everywhere else in the democratic world. In other words, everywhere else in the democratic world, governance revolves around the idea of providing for social welfare, the, the well-being of the citizens, the, the social welfare. Uh, that that took a beating with neoliberalism, by the way. But but you could speak generally and say that 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 was the pivot. Of, of governance in the US welfare is your own damn business like you're 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 responsible for your own well-being your the pursuit of happiness and the in the in in the declaration and all of that is a private affair and government has very high barriers to getting into any of that. The flimsiest of pretexts and the constitution allow for it. The interstate commerce rule. I mean, almost, almost the entire welfare state in the U S what, what flimsy welfare state we have was built on the back of that little flimsy piece of the constitution. It's a, it's a weird history, right? So, so we, so how do political elites pitch their case for governance? I would argue that they often have to find some kind of an emergency. They look for an emergency. It, it's an emergency. We have to do such an, And, you know, fortunately, we had Franklin Roosevelt as president in the 30s, and we had an emergency. And even though he starts out as a conservative Democrat, in, in many regards, he begins to address the emergency. And he builds a series of, of institutions that that still survive. To this day, albeit in weakened form, somewhat. Um, so, so here's a, a long argument about causes. Ameri- moral panic, sex panic, are as American as apple pie. they may be more American than apple pie. Actually, they're they're <laughs> kind of built into our weird system of governance. Liberal reformers, conservative reactions, everybody makes use of of moral panic to make their cases. And, uh, you know, that's that that may be if I'm right, that's the that may be the ultimate backdrop of of a lot of how a lot of this plays out.
1: And, you know, what's so frustrating sometimes is that, I mean, it seems like these moral panics. They galvanize the attention and energy among the population so much more than other issues that we would feel are more important, like, you know, the the upward redistribution of wealth or whatever or healthcare. Right. So, I mean, why do you think this is the case? Like this is this can capture the attention in ways often we cannot. And I mean, is there any hope that that will change?
7: Public is primed for this, right? Like successive generations of political experience being raised and reared and suckled on moral panic, you you know, uh, the only real pretext you have for taking dramatic state action is because it's an emergency. You, you can't do it just because it would provide everyone with health care or you can't do it just because it would give everyone a a dignified retirement or you can't do it just because like, in other words, you know, you have to find that. So the public has been somewhat primed and somewhat programmed to, to think in terms of those structures of extreme events, grievance, victimization and making an appeal to the state for Help under those kinds of extreme circumstances. Uh, Yes, it's it's it becomes. I think it becomes self reinforcing. Now, I mean, uh, we we it's it's there partly because we've never succeeded very well at at providing a, a structure of political activism that was based in vigorous trade unions with social democratic and socialist parties backing it and then going that route. And you can see that the countries of Western Europe who've all had vigorous social democratic parties, at least in the past and still somewhat in the present, um, don't tend to go the route of using moral panic to get things done. Uh, but ultimately, we resort to it because it's the way we get things done. Um, Paul, I know you're running for, for elected office. I mean, <laughs> this will be a, you are probably better than I to be asked this question, right? Like how do we get out of that mode? and how do we how do we, Produce a platform that addresses uh, what Jen was talking about just before I arrived on uh, the public part of the studio. Right? How um, how do you build a platform that incorporates broad working and middle class interests in a way that isn't um, panicked or hysterical or over the that simply looks at the issues and and. And calmly, but insistently pursues real public class interests. Um, Paul, this is a challenge to you, right? I mean, you'll, 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 you you'll, you'll, you'll see that and, uh, um,
0: Roger, I want to quickly follow up on uh, a comment that you made earlier about um, moral panics being as American or perhaps even more American than apple pie, Um, because, you know, uh, you had kind of alluded to this. We we see a lot of the logic of moral panics kind of reproducing everywhere. And when we think about the satanic panic, I kind of feel like the most obvious analog today is like right wing conspiracies like Pizzagate or like, you know, QAnon, which also sort of zero in on a supposed cabal of pedophiles who are like, you know, abusing children and so on and so forth. Um, But because you had mentioned that liberal and progressive reformers often also reproduce kind of this moral panic logic, um, I I was wondering if you could weigh in a little bit about, like, whether you think moral panics are always an expression of social conservatism or what is really going on? And, and, you know, again, like, talk more about the liberal and the progressives.
7: Yikes. Well... Um, I mean the, the, the satanic ritual abuse wasn't cooked up as entirely by conservatives. It was a collaborative it was collaboratively done by an array of institutional actors, including, you know, educated professionals and the helping services industries, um, uh, sex negative feminists were very much involved. And evangelicals were deeply in, implicated, because, in, especially in their circuits of of, um, of social workers and uh, and psychologists. So often, these things are a mix. I mean, it's easy to point to things like um, QAnon, although I'm not I'm not. I mean, PizzaGate lo- looks like a right wing conspiracy theory, clearly, and. Uh, I've dabbled a bit in that. I had some tiny little piece in the Washington Post on it because it happened nearby and, uh, mm. and all of that. Um, uh, QAnon looks... Le- I, I meet people who are not conservative in any deep sense of the word. They're just ordinary working or lower middle-class people. and And they have had their thoughts captured to some extent by, by those QAnon conspiracies, which seem to have like they seem to have washed out in the last several months. If I'm not mm-hmm. I haven't followed it closely. Uh they seem to have washed out a bit. Um but but at their peak, I was always surprised at the uh at the people of goodwill that I met who were we're buying into at least some of those scenarios. Um, I suspect, and, and I I suspect that when people feel, I mean, I'm, I'm ripping off, uh, you know, the, uh, the book on paranoid, paranoid, style of American politics, the essay, of course, um, I, I tend to think that when people feel that the decisions that affect their lives are made by mysterious, invisible, inaccessible groups or cabals or, well, let's be clear, I mean the decisions that affect their lives are made by people Mm -hmm. we can't see we can't touch we can't be in the same room with them like we know that the decisions that affect our lives are made by private interests in closed rooms and 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 so Mm -hmm. on all right so so i suspect that this this is one of those background things like when when mysterious people are making mysterious decisions that we don't get to see or have any impact on we the mind tends to be susceptible to conspiratorial scenarios, and some of those conspiracies get loonier and loonier. Um, you know, Pizzagate and and um, and uh, QAnon being just hallucinatory, basically. Um, but liberals also use. Panic scenarios. They all liberals also use very similar techniques, and and of course liberals will will give you numbers usually, or they'll they'll bring in an authority figure to back it up, or and they'll cite this or that. But but in the end, liberals also tend to use similar techniques in a variety of ways. Um, and some of them are murky. I don't. I mean, look. So I, you know, some of the some of the background issues are very real, right? Like um, we probably should we should be concerned about things like child abuse. We should be concerned about whether children are having their welfare looked after. We should be concerned about uh, about cases of sexual abuse. Um, so when these things enter into public campaigns, however, in the U S they tend to take on, uh, the, the panic form,
4: mm-hmm.
7: um, and, uh, and there is a difficult proposition to straddle, um, the people who were saying, but you have to believe the children. Um, we believe the children. I mean, I, they, they undoubtedly had the children's interests at heart, um, but their thoughts had been hijacked by these highly exaggerated uh, and extreme kinds of scenarios
1: and you know so much so much of our political discourse today is driven by the culture wars and i mean what parallels do you see between the culture war and these moral panics
7: yeah i don't uh what, what hmm. well you, you almost have it happening in a weird left right echo chamber in some ways don't you um so conservative figures Made lots of hay, um, and the, the moral, the moral entrepreneurs associated with anti-gay backlash in the seventies and eighties um, made lots of hay with moral panic, right? And um, uh, it, it's hard to look at any of the culturally conservative backlash politics without seeing a moral panic behind it, right? Um, the uh, the trans women in bathrooms mm-hmm. business almost invariably comes down to panicked narratives. And uh, uh, again, like the favorite technique seems to be to find some one instance of something that happened and then turning this into the, into the national case. Um, But if, but if, you know, again, if, um, if we see that conservatives take singular instances of extreme abuses or extreme cases and, and make their argument around it, we also have to look closely maybe at, 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 at uh, at how liberals fashion some of their arguments, and whether they're doing something similar. And as I, I mean, Jen, as you know, and Paul probably knows, right? I mean, um, we I, I I wrote with the non-site people on on uh, the policing crisis, and uh, getting decent getting decent numbers here, getting good numbers here, getting solid numbers here. is is very important. Um, But again, um, the agitation, rightly, around highly inflammatory police killings of Black men produces great agitation and great emotion. Um, and and again, anyone watching any of those videos or anyone reading any of those accounts should be upset, offended, incensed, angry, and 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 what have you. But the technique leaves a lot of stuff untouched, right? I mean, the the technique it turns out isn't a very good one for having the kind of redistributive politics that you would need to see to uh, to gradually bring down crime rates in the. US to bring down police killings in the US and so on um, and the techniques the, the poster child technique as I call it in the book right the poster child technique, also leaves unaddressed addressed about eighty percent of the police killings in the US, which are not of African American men.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, so you ha- you have to wonder at the use of panic techniques by our liberal sometimes allies, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, d- does it have the, does it have the possibility of bringing into existence a coalition that will affect social inequality in the round? Or does it tend to go down a path that's easily captured by corporate interests and by, uh, you know, elite schemes for the kinds of diversity that you were talking about, Jen, (laughs) and the the magnet schools, which is to say, Mm -hmm. well, they'll have this fine veneer. Of, of diversity at, at at Harvard and Yale and at certain mm-hmm. schools and so on but what we won't do is to, is to take measures that, that affect the well-being of of the masses of working class people who are disproportionately black and Latino um, so that's it's a you get you. I, I feel like you'll get hate mail over what I just said. I'll probably get
4: hate mail over it. It's okay. Well, well, actually,
0: actually, Roger, I do want to follow that up um, because, you know, yeah. clearly uh, in your work, in, in your book, and, and also in your, in your writing um, you are very opposed to the expansion of the carceral state uh, opposed to mass incarceration. Um, you know, you, your whole book is about how we can better avoid kind of these, these law and order backlashes or these moral panics. Right. Um, But, you know, something that has come up uh, which I mentioned earlier is that we are seeing a violent crime wave right now. Um, And, you know, I, I, I want to bring this up with you because I actually don't know what to make of it. Um, I know that a lot of progressive politicians uh, are worried about, you know, about, Republicans leaning into the crime wave, which clearly they have done, and right. and fomenting another moral panic. Right? Um, I know that AOC in particular has called some of the you know worries over crime a moral panic. She she did use that term. Right. Um, but at the same <laughs> time, you know, like I do think that we need to take the issue of crime seriously because, as we've seen, it is it, it does seem to be motivating many particularly working class voters. So uh, this is a big question. And I think it'll be our last one for you. But is there some way that the left can respond to Mm. kind of this problem of rising violent crime in particular, and not just sweeping it under the rug as Republican scaremongering, but at the same time, you know, not grease the wheels for a moral panic?
7: Well the first thing i would say is to stop dismissing the you know concerns a, a 30% spike in homicides nationwide is in one year i've looked at these figures you know i i've i've looked at the figures that we have and that is an unprecedented increase that's not a, that's not it used to take even in the roaring seventies, when crime was on a wild upswing, right, it used to take you know two, three, four years to reach a thirty uh, percent spike in in homicide rates. It's it's a, it's it's a real increase, as you suggested also in your in your talk earlier, right? Um, it's hard to know whether Asian Americans are singled out. Um, it looks like it might be simply an effect of the spiking homicide rates in Mm -hmm. especially cities overall and spikes in violent crime and for a variety of reasons reporters and activists and so on have have focused on i mean on on Mm -hmm. the asian victims i don't Mm -hmm. know like we need better you know we need better data but 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 the uh the first thing I would say, you know, don't, you don't dismiss that. It, it'll, it'll bite you in the ass if you dismiss it, right? I mean, uh, uh, left activists dismissed concerns over crime to some extent in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, the results were quite bad. The results were that uh, conservatives got mastery of the discourse, right? Uh, whereas liberals and progressives and social Democrats had argued for a rehabilitative approach to criminal justice that would put as few people as possible in prison, that would let them out as quickly as possible, that would be focused on their reintegration into society and so on, right? There were, there were, that, was the, that was the the Johnson administration agenda, basically, right? um the conservatives always had one approach to crime put the bad man in jail and keep him there for as long as possible so that he can't do it again and and that was the argument that won in the court of public opinion it won in the court of 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 uh, administrative circles and you can actually see when it gels it's 1973 1974 when this review piece comes out uh on the heels of an american friends service committee report which says basically fuck you um you shouldn't put anybody in jail and and like the system is fucked and uh, and i'm i'm exaggerating slightly the there's the american friends service committee report was 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 actually more significant than that it it said that the system wasn't working and that the the uh uh, instead of rehabilitating the, the, the person who had violated the law, we should rehabilitate the system, we should rehabilitate society. It's a complicated argument to make. Um, but it, it sort of opens the gate for saying that the system isn't working. And then then comes this article called What Works, which concludes basically that nothing is working, that nothing has worked, that none of the reforms worked, that we're easing ourselves into a maelstrom of of criminal victimization, and that the only sound course, literally, literally, is to lock the bad men up and keep them there, to to incapacitate to incapacitate offenders. Um, um, so we're you know I don't think we're there. Like I don't think we're we're not there where we replay that dynamic quite yet. Um, it might be good if some of my allies would 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 stop uh, pretending that there isn't a, a crime problem. I mean, we we were we benefited from a long decline in crime rates of all sorts, especially violent crimes, which are the you know, the crimes people really most care about. Are, are the violent crimes, and if you, you know, you start in the seven, in the in the nineties, uh, and they go down, 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 down. Um, that changed a bit in the last two or three years. You get the figures vacillating a bit, and you had a you had that large increase in in um, in uh, in homicides uh, last year. Um, how do we form? a politics around this. Uh it's a challenge because I don't think you know we on the left are all on the same page. You have some people calling for abolition of police, abolition of prison and and uh you know basically an an agenda for simply not not overhauling the system or reforming it or bringing it into alignment with the norms of other <laughs> developed industrialized democracies but but actually you know going down a a path that very few people can tell you much about or what Mm -hmm. what will look like or what institutions would take care of these problems and and the honest abolitionists seems to me are all all basically have a backdoor mechanism for, for having prisons back in the system right they they you know they they acknowledge that sometimes you have to separate the carefully used word right they have you have to separate recidivistic violent people from society until you can fix them um, so i how do we do this i don't know um It would be, but it, I, I would say this, it, it would be a great venture, a great experiment for the left to take on criminal justice as a display, as, as you know, this is what socialism can do, this or this is what social democracy can do, or this is what, this is what you can do if you have sound planning, economic redistribution, if you have um, a sound system that is empathic to the suffering of criminal victims, but also tries to understand the the situation of the, of the person who broke the law as well Um I don't you know I don't think we're altogether that far away from being able to develop a position like that if you clear out a lot of the noise um maybe you know maybe we could it would look it would look something like northern Europe, which has um, what um very low prison rates they don't have they don't especially have lower crime rates than the US. This is interesting. Hmm. They, they have lower homicide rates. They don't have necessarily much lower crime rates, but they deal with all of this with far more humane institutions and just practices. They incarcerate something like 70 people per 100,000, not 700 Fifty per hundred thousand, like in the U.S. I think we're down to seven hundred now, actually, um, but we're still ten times ahead of, of what incarceration rates look like in um, in Northern Europe. And I, you know, um, so there that would be that would be a, a, a decent agenda, and it might, you know, if you if you could sell it to working class people, um. In a way that wasn't patronizing or demeaning and and, um, struck people as fair, Mm -hmm. um, I, I suspect it would be a, you know, it would be a vote getter, it would be a way forward for the left.
0: I want to add that uh, this is not a platform or an agenda, but the latest issue of Jacobin, uh, which of course your article appears in Roger uh, tries to get at some of these questions. I think Um, it it just hit newsstands today. I think I got mine in the mail like earlier in the week, Um, but it's really great. I I recommend it to everybody and please especially read Roger's article.
7: I got my digital copy uh, this morning and I got to tell you, it looks great. I'm going to use it Mm -hmm. in my classes. So um, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, um, again, Roger Lancaster is the author of the book Sex Panic, uh, and he his article in the latest issue of Jacobin, which I just mentioned, is The Devil Goes to Preschool. Again, it's about uh, moral panics and specifically the satanic panic of the 80s and the McMartin trial. Roger, thank you so much for being with us.
7: Thanks, Jen. It's a pleasure. Great to meet you digitally or known <laughs> <laughs> Paul via email for years. Right. Uh,
1: yeah,
0: You got to go way back, back well. I guess.
1: <laughs> All right. Thanks, Roger. Moral panics, not good. Don't do them.
0: <laughs> right. Big yeah. takeaway. I thought that Roger's point about, you know, the ways in which liberals and progressives can sometimes replicate uh moral panics was really interesting. I mean, like I said, you know, I think that it's really easy to think of them as only a byproduct of, you know, conservatives or, you know, of a kind of societal anxiety to like, uh, I don't know, you know, deal with like unsavory elements of society. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, it does keep the, the same logic sort of reproduces across the political aisle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely look at the, the liberal reaction to Trump's election as like a total, I mean, everything just felt like panic mode anytime Mm -hmm. you turn on the news. Um, Yeah,
0: state of emergency.
1: Yeah. And and again, I think then it's this just like translate into pathologizing the white working class so called. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Yeah, it really feels like a moral panic to me.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, you know, during the course of the conversation, um, also thinking about the you know, my segment where I was talking about kind of these fears among working class Asian American, uh, you know, voters about rising crime and specifically about, you know, assaults on Asians. Like, you know, like I said, and like Roger, you know, kind of alluded to, um, it's actually not clear to what extent the, you know, racial element is motivating these crimes. But that said, I, I think that there is a perception that that is part of what's going on. Um, and, and I, again, you know, I think that that is really contributing to the swing to the right in some of these cities among Asian voters. Um, And, you know, again, this, this is just in New York that I was talking about. But I think you're going to see a similar dynamic playing out in other large cities where you have, you know, a rise in violent crime. um, And also, like, in, city, in cities like San Francisco, you also have that same, like, specialized high school problem. I don't know if you, like, follow this issue, but, mm-hmm. you know, lots of school or lots of cities now are, um, in, weirdly, instead of trying to, like, improve the entire public school systems, are, are right. just focusing on, like, a handful of, like, elite schools. So, who you know, to be continued, I guess.
1: Yeah, and, and just on that point on crime, you know, I mean, what's so ironic here is that it by um, kind of denying the the crime wave, especially the violent crime wave. I mean, the mm-hmm. people that puts you most out of touch with, I think would be working class black communities, um, yeah. it, depending where where you're living, but, you know, uh, and, you know, communities that are feeling it are, that are bearing the brunt of it and are victims of it the most and where it's the most visceral. And again, of course it doesn't mean you have to take a law and order position. Um, but, you know, it's like, but yeah, the first step is like acknowledging what is right in front of all of us and is really right. affecting people and it, it's just very ironic that like by doing that I think the people that are most out of touch with that are, you know, the racial minorities that mm-hmm. the left is cl- is claiming to fight for.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Roger sort of alluded to this, but you know, I've seen articles written by, you know, ostensible progressives and liberals that are like well actually the crime rate is down and like that's true i mean when you look at all crime but the, the point here which again roger got at was that violent crime is up and that's what really you know moves people um and that's what produces kind of these law and order backlashes so i mean you saw that in the 70s as well mm. Um, and actually a Donner's article in the new issue of jacobin uh gets at that so check that out too
1: yeah for sure
0: all right. Well, uh, Paul, do you have any last thoughts or, I don't know, are you answering, you're not answering labor, Paul? Not labor today, right? today okay, All right. still definitely Sorry, guys. S-
1: submit it. I uh, know yeah. I've been slacking lately, but, um, yeah, my final thoughts, uh, safe staffing, good moral pain bad.
0: <laughs> right. So <laughs>
1: that's it.
0: Um, yep. Yeah, on that note, uh, thanks for watching. We will see you next week and, uh, till next time.
1: Good night.